Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 64, The Personal Rule of Henry III, part 1. Our story has brought us to 1234 and the personal rule of Henry III. Up to now, Henry has been working with, or even dominated by, powerful, experienced men like Peter de Roche and Hubert de Burr, men who were to a degree a product of the old Angevin regime. Okay, so Henry had clearly boobed in 1232-4 when he'd allowed himself to make a rash decision over Peter de Roche. But he'd cooked, carved and eaten the humble pie, listened to his councillors and the Archbishop of Canterbury and tried to put things right. Now that he'd dispensed with the old regime, he could prove his mettle during a period of personal rule. This is the second phase then of Henry's long reign, the period of personal rule that takes us from 1234 to 1258. Henry gets a very poor press from history. But he never really made it to the big league of villains, because there are many good aspects of these years, and because you can't help but feel that Henry's barons are no more dressed in long white robes, white feathery wings and halos, than Henry was. Henry's personal rule will be ended by what we might describe as the first radical political movement in English history, the first sign of genuine social radicalism, led by the most, and I mean the most, unlikely leader of social radicalism. For lovers of constitutional history, Henry's reign is fundamental in the development of Parliament. So, now that we've got a king who seems genuinely in control at the grand old age 27, what kind of a bloke is Henry? What becomes clear quite early on is that Henry is a very different beast to his father. Physically, he was portrayed as medium height, probably similar to his father's five foot six. He had a strong build and a drooping eyelid that hid part of his pupil. The experience of his youth and the uncertainty of his regency and civil war appears to have marked him. He never felt secure and spent most of his reign trying to keep the peace at home. This meant that he tried to keep a happy and harmonious royal court. His very conciliatory approach and attempt to keep his barons happy at all points led him to be something of a doormat. Though, I should issue a word of warning at this point, there's more than one interpretation of Henry's motivation and approach. The traditional historical approach from historians such as Clancy and Trahane was that Henry was deeply concerned with the dignity and power of kingship that he developed a specific theory of royal absolutism and threatened the magnates in their power, that he excluded the magnates from his inner council and relied on foreigners and the Queen. But more recently, deeply convincing historians like David Carpenter have argued that this gives Henry way too much credit for a firm policy and strategy. Yes, Henry did indeed have a high view of the dignity of his office, which combined with his piety, so kingship as a religious duty. But all Henry really wanted was to govern England in accordance with the laws and customs of the realm and keep everyone happy, chill, have a nice time at home, so that he could then get his ancestral lands back, 
or find some alternative foreign adventure. Unfortunately, the evidence is that Henry lacked the strength of character to make this work. Or, put it another way, it might just be that he simply wasn't hard and mean enough. It seems as though he must have had a friend somewhere called Ruth, because he clearly wasn't ruthless. This, I accept, is a rubbish joke, but it's always been one of my favourites. Anyway, the Osney Chronicle recognised all of this. It described him as simplex, a word that could mean a number of things. At one end of the scale, it could be honest and straightforward, and at the other, it could be plain stupid. The pendulum probably ended up in Henry's case as a bit naive, because basically his judgment wasn't very sound. But nonetheless, he has flashes where he acts quite decisively and cunningly. And he's not an idiot. As we'll see, he's pretty deeply involved in government and finance, with a close understanding and keen interest in what's going on. But somehow he just seems to lack the ability to judge the consequences of what he does. And so sometimes his schemes work and sometimes they don't. Essentially, you get the feeling that this is a rather weak man, without the strength of will to make things happen, but sometimes, rather arbitrarily, decides to take a stand and try and assert himself. Having said that, he seems a much nicer person than his father. Although he was capable of an outburst of Angevin temper, in general, he was easily appeased and was courteous and affable. He had none of John's traditional passion for hunting. There's some evidence from the fine rolls of their relative sense of humour, so... You may remember the fine that John levied where Hugh de Neville's wife was forced to pay 200 chickens so that she could spend one night with her husband. The historian David Carpenter's view is that the wife is John's mistress and the fine is a joke that a night with her husband is only worth a rather laughable 200 chickens. Well, 200 chickens to me seems quite a lot and indicates a bit of a humdinger of a night, but there you go. Compare that with Henry's sense of humour, of which we get a glimpse from the fine rolls as well. Whilst on board ship travelling somewhere, Henry got his clerks to add a series of fines against one of his household, Peter the Poitevin. The gag was that Peter would see these, be immediately horrified, and then see the fines were clearly ridiculous. How they would laugh. OK, so I think the comparison has quite a lot to tell us. John's humour is nasty and dangerous, but also potentially funny. Henry's is gentler, but really just not funny. Both kings are metaphorically hung by their subjects, one as a wolf and one as a lamb. Henry's also clearly less energetic and more stay-at-home than his father. He doesn't do all that mad charging around the kingdom. He's indifferent to tournaments and hunting. He would spend weeks and months at his palaces in the south and southeast of England. It's not exactly that he's lazy. It's very clear that he's aware of the details of the affair of government and takes his role very seriously, but he doesn't have the mad Angevin energy. He was also a very pious man, which won him much respect at the time. It's him that made a cult out of Edward the Confessor, and like his template, devoted vast amounts of time and money to the rebuilding of Westminster Abbey in the grandest of styles. He gave alms to the poor also on a grand scale, feeding 500 paupers every day in 1240, for example, and hearing Mass four times a day. But we shouldn't take it from all of this that he was unambitious, because that would be wrong. He attempts to win the Kingdom of Sicily for his younger son, and his first priority in the 1230s and 40s is to regain his father's kingdom. Like his father, Henry loved opulence. But unlike his father, Henry enjoyed sharing his wealth as much as displaying it. The royal wardrobe accounts that are enrolled on the exchequer pipe rolls record purchases of exquisite fabrics and cloths of gold. Rings, brooches, cups and belts, all decorated with gems, were acquired for the king, his family and courtiers. 
Largesse was a central part of Henry's character and his kingship. So, there's a portrait of our man. To sum up, not a complete idiot, though no great intellect. Not a bad man. Bit weak, not a great leader, no warrior, deeply concerned with the forms and dignity of the royal office. And the important question to consider is what motivated Henry's building, giving and praying. Going back to that debate, Clanchy suggested that Henry pursued a policy of sole royal authority, that he deliberately sought to create an exalted image of the divinely inspired kingship. In contrast and in response, David Carpenter argued that King Henry, mindful of his father's legacy and influenced by stories of his patron saint, sought only to rule in concert and harmony with the political community. He often and spectacularly failed to do so, but this was more the result of personal weakness than political theory. If, in the words of the Duke of Buckingham, the world is made up of fools and knaves, then I think it's probably the fool category we're looking at for Henry. So, after Archbishop Edmund had stepped in and helped sort things out, and Henry had eaten his slice of humble pie, we've also come to the end of the period of the Great Justices, which started back with William Rufus and Ranulph Flambard. Henry decides it's all been far too much trouble having great officers of state around the place. Clearly, they're too opinionated, so he'll do without. I'm not sure this is what everyone intended when they'd risen in revolt, but it's what they got. The Justicia's main official function, as the country's chief justice, was taken over by the most senior justice, a man called William de Raleigh. The Justicia's role of the king's senior adviser was taken over by anyone who could gain the king's ear. The other great officer of state was that of Chancellor, and that was held by Ralph Neville. Neville had been made Chancellor in 1226, was famed for his impartiality, and while he was still around, there would always be some confidence in the king's government. But again, bear in mind that Henry is still fixing to get rid of troublesome officials who get in the way of his childlike desire to have what he wants and to have it now. And Ralph de Neville would be gone before the end of the 30s. As we've said, Henry is simply not as eaten up by ambition as his predecessors, but if he does have a driver during this time, it's a desire to win back his father's lands in France. But of course, at the end of the last episode, his efforts had ended in disaster, with the submission of his ally, the Duke of Brittany. So, he's looking for allies, and the next big event in his life was therefore his marriage to Eleanor of Provence. Eleanor was the daughter of Raymond Berengar, the Count of Toulouse, and his wife Beatrice. They had four daughters, all supposedly very beautiful, but in truth, it's difficult to know. Chroniclers in these days saw no future in remarking that the sons and daughters of their mighty, potential patrons could have curdled cream with one look. But apparently, Eleanor was graceful, charming and elegant. All the girls were to marry well, as my grandmother would have said. Margaret married Louis IX of France, Sanchez married Richard of Cornwall, the king's brother, and then Beatrice married a chap called Charles of Anjou, who was to achieve what Henry himself could not in Sicily, but we'll come to that later. Eleanor arrived over in 1235, and then we know she was just 12 at the time. Eleanor would be a player, tough, determined. Some of this was presumably just innate. As a father of three, I've always subscribed to the nature version of why people are the way they are, since when my lot inevitably go off the rails, I'll be able to say, not my fault, Gov, they just got dealt a poor genetic hand. But maybe some of Eleanor's toughness came from her relative vulnerability when she arrived. She brought no inheritance with her. No queen consort in England had wielded any significant power since Eleanor of Aquitaine in the 1160s. And since then, queens had fewer advantages than they used to. The custom of giving them substantial lands had lapsed, and the bigger machinery of government gave them less opportunity to intervene in politics. 
Eleanor was to cut through all of this and be the most powerful queen since Edith pre-conquest. She built up her own household to over a hundred and got her hands on substantial estates through wardships, which she exploited without Ruth. She also got her hands on what was called the Queen's Gold. This was a percentage of the fines levied by the King to be given to the Queen. She was helped in all of this by Henry's attitude. On one level, he was easily swayed anyway. On another, he clearly admired his wife and thought of her as his partner in monarchy. Eleanor was therefore able to have considerable latitude. We'll see later whether this is a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing. On the evening of their wedding, Henry and little 12-year-old Eleanor probably had sex. But probably for political reasons. The marriage is consummated, that sort of thing. Thereafter, it's very likely that Henry exercised some self-restraint. This seems very sensible and very nice, but it probably didn't do Eleanor's reputation any favours in the short term, because the only bit of Eleanor that the nation was interested in at this point was her womb, sadly. And for three years, Eleanor's womb had failed to deliver. We know that by 1238, they were at least sleeping together, though, because in September of that year, a madman broke into Henry's bedroom with murder in his heart. Unfortunately for him, Henry wasn't there, because he was with the Queen. And then in 1239, Eleanor did deliver in the form of Edward, to be called Longshanks, Hammer of the Scots, a man very different from his father, a king generally thought of to be one of the best, who I find vaguely irritating. Anyway, Edward was born at Westminster on the site where now sits the Houses of Parliament. Everyone went potty. The clerks of the Royal Chapel sang, messengers were sent off, speeding in all directions to tell the glad tidings, and the citizens of London went wild, dancing through the streets with lanterns, drums and tambourines. Gifts came flooding in as messengers returned. Henry's reaction to these gifts broke all the Christmas oh-you-shouldn't-have rules. If he didn't think they were good enough, he sent the bearer back to get better ones. So here's a good example of the simpleton thing. I mean, really, if it's not sensible to tell your granny that her present sucks, how much worse for a king to do the same with his subjects? The name, incidentally, is also very significant, Edward. It was a very odd name for the time. It was Anglo-Saxon, for Pete's sake. Why would he do that? His name was as odd to the noble Anglo-French ear as Egbert is to ours. But Henry had a thing for Edward the Confessor. Now, this seems a bit odd. After all, looking back, it's difficult to avoid the thought that Edward the Confessor was something of a loser. But after he'd died, his reign had acquired the patina of a golden age, and the man had been recognised as a saint. Henry saw a role model. Edward the Confessor had also lost his father and been abandoned by his mother at an early age. He also had a reputation for piety. He also wished to cultivate peace. So, Henry adopted the role model. This went as far as the complete rebuilding of Westminster Abbey in the 1240s at enormous expense, replacing Edward's Romanesque building with the Gothic beauty we see today. Once the child was born, Eleanor made her main residence Windsor Castle, on which Henry also lavished vast quantities of money, over £10,000 all told. Rooms were equipped with ensuite toilets, linked by covered walkways and lit by glazed windows with pillars of Purbeck marble. Windsor was the last word in elegance and comfort, with green walls spangled with gold stars. Henry, as we've said, had a love of luxury, and as a small child the future Longshanks ate off silver plate and was dressed in expensive silk robes and cloth of gold. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Eleanor also brought with her one of the threads that will lead to war and political turmoil. She brought with her those most terrible of creatures, i.e. relatives, which is unsurprising for a 12-year-old sent to a foreign land, but the trend of bringing foreigners over to the king's court was to prove political dynamite. Now, the people that Eleanor brought over would be reasonably positively thought of on a personal level, but the factions they were to be part of would be fuel poured on the bonfire of revolution. Eleanor's friends and relations were generally from Eleanor's mother's hood, i.e. Savoy, the region that straddles the Alps of modern France and Italy, the Savoyard. In 1241, Eleanor's uncle Peter of Savoy tipped up, and also Boniface of Savoy and Peter of Ique Blanche. Peter of Savoy, by the way, was also granted the land between the Strand in London and the River Thames. He built a palace there that was destroyed by the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, but which still remembers his name in the Savoy Hotel. Anyway, when these relays arrived, they weren't to be fobbed off with a cup of tea and a quick look at the latest photos. They were showered with gifts, power, land and influence. Peter of Savoy was granted the honour of Richmond, then that of Pevensey, then the wardship of John of Warren. Boniface became the Archbishop of Canterbury, Peter of Igeblanche, the Bishop of Hereford. No fewer than 170 members of the Savoyard connection came over, two-thirds of them clerics. 39 of them had lands from the king and about 40 money of at least 100 marks or more. This first wave of the early 1240s actually seems to have passed off okay, largely because, as I say, they were pretty circumspect and well-behaved. But they were the Queen's protégés and she was going to fight their corner. So watch this space. Meanwhile, there'd already been another foreign arrival. His name was Simon de Montfort, and ironically he would never be tarred with the foreigner brush and indeed became an icon of English liberty. You remember the Albigensian Crusades we talked about a while ago? Well, this is the same family. Simon Jr. was therefore born into a fiercely and religiously... Simon Jr. was therefore born into a fiercely and rigidly religious family, prepared to kill, burn and destroy for their religion. They were also a family that was equally fiercely orthodox. Simon Sr., for example, had been one of the very few crusaders who'd actually withdrawn from the attack on the city of Zara on the First Crusade when Innocent III had forbidden the attack. Simon Jr. was to show the same fervour and fanaticism. Simon de Montfort Sr. had died outside the walls of Toulouse in 1218, when Simon Jr. was only 10. His mother, the equally remarkable Alice de Montmorency, died in 1221, when Simon was 13, and his brother Amory had become the head of the clan. Obviously in those days, being anything other than the eldest son was a very poor career choice but de Montfort clearly acquired not only his mother and father's religious zeal, but he also acquired their relentless ambition, self-confidence and intelligence. He wasn't going to be happy with the life of a household knight. At the same time, the precariousness of the life of the third son whose parents died young will be reflected in his obsessive search for financial security. Now it just so happens that Simon de Montfort had a real, if rather tenuous, claim to the earldom of Leicester, I doubt any of you remember, but in one episode I think we mentioned Robert de Beaumont and his wife Petronilla of Grand Menil. Simon was their great-grandson. So, in 1230, 
de Montfort promised to buy out any claim his elder brother might have and set off to the court of Henry III to seek his fortune. Now, as it happens, it wasn't just Amory that Simon had to persuade to stand aside. There were other claimants too, and Ranulph of Chester was one. But somehow de Montfort managed it, and by 1230 he was Lord of the Honour of Leicester, even though it would take him until 1239 to actually become an Earl. But either way, the boy done well. De Montford was also probably with Henry during his ill-fated expedition to Poitou in 1230. Somewhere along the line, we don't really know where or when, de Montford acquired this reputation for military prowess. Well, maybe it was here, or maybe even earlier in the south of France, although he'd have been pretty young. For the next few years, de Montford focused on his lands in Leicester, from where he expelled the Jews in 1232. But he wasn't yet home and dry. He had 500 quid a year, but he had debts of 700 quid to clear. The answer would lie with the centre of all patronage and power, the king and his court. And from 1234, de Montfort is increasingly at the centre of Henry's increasingly unpopular government. In some of the charters which survive, his is the very first name which comes after the earls, ahead of all the other barons. De Montfort, at this time, is a coming man. He was also as close to Henry as any other lord. There is clearly something quite compelling about the man. He had a keen intelligence, a silver tongue, a force of character that drew other men to follow him. And Henry III was clearly no exception, despite the difference in rank. There's absolutely no sign whatsoever of any kind of social reformer. And then, in 1238, he landed the big one and no mistake. The big one in this idiom was marriage to the king's sister, another Eleanor. The marriage took place in secret in a little chapel in the corner of the king's chamber at Westminster. No one was even consulted. Now, the marriage of the king's sister was no small thing. It's not about love, happiness and making a contribution to the gene pool. This is a matter of state. Eleanor was an immensely valuable counter in the game of politics and she'd been chucked away on some pushy French parvenu. If nothing else, it's more evidence of the king's lack of judgment. The reaction was violent. Richard of Cornwall, the king's brother, and Gilbert Marshall flared into revolt and forced Henry to placate them, including a 6,000 mark bribe for Richard. There's also a reference to conditions that were written down, but what they were does unfortunately not survive. But whatever Richard's reaction to what was, true enough, a quite remarkable marriage, for a while Simon and Henry were very close. De Montford's first son in 1238 was named after Henry. Henry was at De Montford's castle at Kenilworth at the time, and de Montfort signed more charters than anyone else. And then, suddenly, it all goes pear-shaped, and it appears that money is at the root of this particular evil. De Montfort managed to end up owing a massive 2,800 marks to Thomas of Savoy. Thomas of Savoy arrived in England in 1239 for a visit, and to hunt down Simon, and everything kicked off. It transpires that de Montfort had suggested that Henry the King was underwriting his debt, whereas Henry, in fact, had done no such thing. Henry was livid, and all of a sudden he'd apparently been against the marriage to his sister all along. Matthew Paris has him say, You seduced my sister before her marriage. When I discovered this, I gave her to you, though unwillingly, to avoid a scandal. De Montfort and his wife were forced to flee down the Thames and across the Channel to safety. However, in April 1240 he was back in England for a visit and apparently reconciled to the king. After all, hate it or loathe it, he was now part of the family, and Henry just had to live with it. In that same summer, the de Montfort set out on crusade along with Richard of Cornwall. The 
Crusade didn't achieve anything great, and we don't know much about de Montfort's contribution, except that in June 1241, the citizens of Jerusalem wrote to Frederick II, asking him to make de Montfort governor of the place. So once again, he'd clearly cut something of a dash. By 1242, Simon was back with Henry. The occasion was another opportunity for Henry to win back his ancestral lands of Poitou. Louis IX had decided that something needed to be done to control Poitou more effectively, but without being unnecessarily inflammatory. His solution was to make his brother Alphonse Count of Poitou as an appanage. An appanage, incidentally, is a word for a grant of lands and titles to a member of the royal family, either because they were younger sons who wouldn't normally inherit, or sometimes as a separate parcel of land to give them an income and relevant responsibility before they come into their full inheritance. Either way, the grant of Poitou as an appanage would give control to family, and therefore an ally, hopefully without creating the kind of first direct royal rule would make. He counted without the stiff neck of the Lusignan, however. Isabella and Hugh de Lusignan were not impressed with the whole idea one little bit. Alphonse, without doubt, cramped their style and reduced the autonomy they'd enjoyed for so long. They also knew that if it came to a revolt, they wouldn't be alone. They had two allies. The obvious one was Henry, but the other was Raymond of Toulouse. In 1229, at the end of the Albigensian Crusade, the Treaty of Paris had dramatically reduced Raymond's lands. But it was more than this. The Treaty of Paris signalled the end of the long tradition of the independence of the south of France. Raymond's daughter Joan was to be married to the self-same Alphonse, and given that Raymond had no other children, that meant that Toulouse would pass into the hands of the Capetians. Raymond was desperate to avoid this fate, the death of his family's control, power and influence. So, by Christmas 1241, Hugh de Lusignan had himself a potential rebellion. At Alphonse's Christmas feast, he insulted the Count by refusing to pay him homage. My guess, and it's just a guess, is that this came as no surprise to Alphonse or Louis. There would have been no strangers to the Lusignan reputation. By April, they'd assembled their army at the centre of Angevin power, the castle at Chinon. Henry arrived in Royan, a coastal town in the region called the Saintonge, just to the north of Gascony. He arrived with a small number of men. Hugh would no doubt have liked him to arrive with a large number of men. The reason for the wrong adjective was the distrust between English barons and their king. They had steadfastly refused to agree to a new tax to raise money for the war. So Henry had to go with what he had and join Lusignan. Meanwhile in the south, Raymond had raised the standard, setting out from Montségur and starting off by massacring some of the Inquisition that were harassing the remaining Cathars. Louis and Alphonse came south, aiming for the Saint-Ange's principal town, Saint. Before they could get there, they'd need to cross the river Charente, which could be crossed at a town called Taillebourg. And it's there that the two armies stared at each other across the waters. What happens next is another sad example of the English decline. The French attacked the bridge, and the English and their allies bravely ran away, retreating to Saint. Though let us be fair, it seems that the French army was significantly larger. At some point, Henry had recalled de Montfort, and Simon joined the army with his legendary military skill, and is apparently one of the English who put up at least some resistance, fighting hard outside the walls of Saint. Henry felt he'd been sold a pup by Hugh, and the castle at Saint rang with the accusation and counter-accusation, but the long and short was that by the end of July, Henry was all the way back in Bordeaux. Hugh and Isabella went on their knees in front of Louis to beg forgiveness, an activity I imagine they hated with spectacular passion. In the south, Raymond fought on. 
but was forced to submit in January 1243. The failure to retake Poitou in 1242 is in retrospect highly significant, in that it sealed the loss of the Angevin territories outside of Gascony. Of course, we don't know if that's what Henry was thinking as he took the ferry back to England, but it is what will happen with the Treaty of Paris 17 years later. Another interesting angle on the campaigns is what it tells us about Henry and de Montfort's relationship. On the one hand, they were back together, but their relationship was far from happy. At one point in the campaign, de Montfort exploded with exasperation and told Henry that he ought to be locked up like the Carolingian king Charles the Simple in 923. By and large, this just isn't the kind of thing you say to a king, and Henry clearly never forgot it. But the fact that Henry let him say it, and de Montfort said it, says volumes about both of them. Meanwhile, in the background is a constant needling about money, de Montfort constantly accusing Henry of owing him money for reasons just far too complicated to go into. What Henry was beginning to find out was that in de Montfort he had a man with no give to him, no facility for compromise. Henry keeps giving a little bit to keep de Montfort happy, and de Montfort just keeps on finding other reasons why he's owed yet more. Don't get me wrong, there's little doubt that de Montfort believed his claims, there's no implication that he's being dishonest, it's just that few of his claims were clear-cut and he admitted of no margin for error on his part. So, I think that's probably a good place to leave it for this week. Next week we'll begin the run-up to the momentous events of the late 1250s and why they came to pass. And meanwhile, as ever, thank you very much for your kind comments and iTunes ratings. Good luck and have a great week.